We're so craving human connection and humor and laughter and a bit more humanity in our interactions. And what I have found and what the executives we work with and the students we work with is these little sparkles of levity and humor are real windows into humanity. And if you think about this moment in time, right, not only is it incredibly challenging for so many people, but we're also more technology mediated than ever before. And we know that the more technology mediated our communications become, the easier it is to talk like a robot and act like a robot because we adapt to our medium. And so it's really easy to go through an entire conversation with a client, with another team member on whatever video conference platform you're on and not make a human connection. And so the baseline is all times are the right time to bring a little bit more humanity to work, which is a window in our, into our sense of humour. That was Naomi Bagdonis, co-author of the book Humour Seriously. And this is the Natural Born Thinkers podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to Natural Born Thinkers, a podcast designed to help you live a more creative lifestyle. My name is Sam Hunter, and my job is to help people tap into their creative potential to solve their biggest individual and business challenges. I set up this podcast to reveal the secret source behind the creative thinking process and to provide a perspective on how we can live a life that enables us to more confidently draw upon our natural creativity. I believe that our minds are all uniquely wired to think differently and that the world depends on our diverse creative potential. Today's session is all about the power of humour and its potential to help you think differently. I don't know about you all listening, but during my experience of the workplace, while laughter certainly did happen, it was not always respected nor encouraged. In fact, I would be willing to say that workplace professionalism and humour are not necessarily seen as two peas in a pod, but are more typically seen as polar opposites from one another. For years, humour has had bad press in the workplace until right now. Today's guest is Naomi Bagdonis, a lecturer at the Stanford Business School, an executive and celebrity coach, an entrepreneur, and now also a co-author of the immediate US national best-selling book, Humour Seriously, Why Humour is a Superpower at Work and in Life. Humour Seriously is one of the funniest and enlightening business books you will ever read and certainly makes a joke out of the cultural idea that humour is not conducive to workplace results. In the book, Naomi and co-author Dr Jennifer Arker explore the different types of humour, the science and art of humour and the impact of humour in the workplace. Highlights of their research shows how humour can help us become more powerful, connected resilient and creative. I absolutely had to get Naomi on this podcast because the idea of unlocking creative potential through humour was something I most definitely had to explore. If a key to creativity is as simple as laughing, then why would this not be something we all do more of? This is the funniest podcast I've had the pleasure of hosting yet, and I hope the conversation would encourage you to take on the challenge Naomi lanes out at the end, to live your week on the precipice of a smile. Welcome to Natural Born Thinkers, Naomi Bagdonis. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Sam. I'm so excited to have you on the call today because A, because it's been a long time coming and B, because is it fair to say that you could possibly call yourself one of the funniest women in business right now, given all the success you're having with your latest book? Unequivocally not. (laughs) But I will say some of my absolute favorite people have been or will be on your podcast. So it's really about me getting in with that company that I am uh, pretty excited about having a conversation with you. Oh, no, thank you. You're you're very, very modest (laughs) and also very kind for joining. And, um, you know, I was thinking, because we've obviously known each other for a few years. Um, We were at the same large consulting organization for a while when I guess LinkedIn um, people who like to look up or people can f- probably figure out what that organization was. <laughs> but, <laughs> the, there was, I was on the East Coast, you're on the West Coast, and I think we had the same mentor and there are rumors that there were these two amazing creative women on the opposite sides of the country um, and we should meet and we should work together. And for whatever reason, either management uh, design or divine in- 
intervention, we never actually had the opportunity to work together, which is a shame because I think we could have really done something amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was a real Montagues and Capulets situation, East Coast, West Coast. We never got to work together, but we made it here. So we've defied them all. Oh, yeah, exactly. We found our own space. <laughs> We've both left that organization and, and since having gone our own way, you have gone on this amazing journey and then you've set up your own strategy and innovation and coaching consultancy. And you are lecturing at Stanford University on uh, humor in business. You also have released your online learning course, Remotely Humorous, with Connor Demon Yalman which is about helping teams understanding and bringing humor into the workplace. And additionally, and obviously, which is the hot topic right now, and a national, immediate national bestseller, is your first book, Humor Seriously, co-written with um, Stanford behavioral scientist, Jennifer Arker. Yes, I feel like we should have like a crowd cheering moment. So if we could just <laughs> in post, just have... <laughs> that would be great. Um, yes, we are very excited that we just launched our book. It's been a long time coming. And the impetus for the book really was, you know, we've been teaching this content at Stanford for five years. It's about the power of humor in business and in life. And it essentially shows why humor is an underleveraged superpower in business, why no one's using it and why everyone should be. And so after teaching that for five years at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, we, and we also, by the way, um, we teach improv in the San Francisco County jails. We do um, work with nonprofits and we were doing our own one-on-one -on -one coaching with executives and celebrities. And we got to this point where we really wanted to scale the concepts that, you know, there, there are only so many people that we can teach directly. And so the book was a way to scale this idea that we really deeply believe in, which is that our world would be better and our businesses would be better if we all navigated our lives on the precipice of a smile. And that's such a beautiful phrase for it, on the precipice of a smile. And it's it's so true. I mean, I'm someone who's always looking for the funny side. We were just sharing that my father is uh, was diagnosed with two different forms of cancer, which is inherently not funny. Mm -hmm. And I we haven't had the physical contact or connection during these few months uh, with that diagnosis and with the treatment going on. And honestly, the only way I think the family's been able to pull together and connect is by having a macabre sense of humor about the whole thing. Um, so it, it's, you know, I feel you think and look at what's going on in the world right now and you can say, yes, it's very hard to find something to smile about, but where you can, what an opportunity to bring some joy and also many other things, which I know you're going to talk to about the neuroscience of, of humor as we get into this. Yeah, it's such an important point that it feels like humor is this fun and frivolous thing that should sort of fall off when things get serious. And in fact, we find from the research and also from these stories of Marines who are deployed or people who are grieving loved ones who are um, who have recently passed away, or people going through really serious traumas in their lives, that we find in those moments in particular, these real pockets of laughter and levity in ways that help people get through it. And for me, this is actually why this content was so deeply important to me. Humor was a huge part of my family growing up. And, you know, back generations, my grandparents used to host skit nights for all the local kids during the depression. And, you know, they had like a dress up box and everyone would come and put on these skits. And when I was growing up, there was such an emphasis on having fun and being lighthearted together. And we went through a period of time where my dad was sick for a couple of years and we're very lucky that he is healthy now. But there were a couple of years where he was really sick in my childhood. And one year in particular, he was upstairs in sort of a recliner hospital bed in our living room and he had an IV pole um, next to him. And uh, he couldn't go downstairs. And we always used to keep the Christmas tree downstairs, which by the way, my mom is Jewish. My dad was raised Catholic and is now Buddhist. So very confusing why we'd have a Christmas tree, but <laughs> but somehow it was important for us to celebrate every holiday under the sun. So we had a Christmas tree. And um, so, you know, so that year we just weren't going to have a tree and which was fine, right? We had bigger fish to fry at the, at the moment. And I remember my sister and I went to bed, you know, Christmas Eve, a little disappointed. And we woke up on Christmas morning and walked into the living room to find that my parents had 
decked out my dad's IV pole like a Christmas tree. There was, you know, tinsel and lights and my dad was wearing the the tree skirt, you know, around him and he just, <laughs> you know, fell to our knees laughing and crying. And it was just this moment of, um, of resilience, of agency, of feeling like there was so little that we had control over. And yet the one thing that we could control was how, you know, our, our mindsets and how we sort of work together and banded together as a family. So that's, that's, that's really what drove this work for me personally. And of course, you know, there's a, there's another aspect of me losing my sense of humor at work, but in terms of why this is such an important value in my life, it's, it's really that. Yeah. And that's an amazing story. Cause as you shared there, it's resilience, uh, connection and, you know, empowerment, what you can control is is your mindset and your approach to a situation and this is exactly why I wanted to have you on the podcast today because natural born thinkers is all about this idea that we have the power and the biological capability to enable our minds to think in different ways and I think humor is an amazing tool to do that and something very easily accessible to us so I think that's a a really great intro into this and you know you always remember your funniest moments don't you and you live to say oh I can't wait until I laugh like that again and <laughs> kind of doing a little bit of a humor audit on my own life um, which is I know something you do with your your students as coming into this and I remember one of the times I laughed the hardest was I was a swimmer many moons ago and I was lining up just about to go down to the block to probably the biggest one of the biggest competitions of my life which was a world cup meet in Hong Kong and my entire team had just been teasing me for a good five minutes about fancying this guy from and for multiple reasons there was just no way that I did and <laughs> they, it was very very funny and I couldn't stop laughing which some might say is just terrible terrible preparation for a really big race and I walked up to the block still smiling and then I got on the block and I don't really even remember that race. It just felt amazing from beginning to end. And I got a silver medal and a Scottish record. So, wow. Yeah, well, after reading your book, I realized that maybe <laughs> humor here helped me unlock my uh my performance potential and okay I'm not endorsing that every executive or athlete has an you know teaser someone for fancying someone <laughs> right before <laughs> a big deliverable or a big uh, race but that story for me really helped me see this connection between uh, humor and what it can do. I love that. We've heard so many stories from diff different athletes who say this who say that at the highest levels that having laughter in the clubhouse or in the locker room is so core to having strong performance. And one of our interviews for the book was Alex Rodriguez, who is a three-time MVP, 14-time all-star, an incredible baseball player. And he talks about how, uh, you know, there are in a world of saber metrics where everyone's being appraised by numbers, you know, whether it's home runs, RBIs, slugging percentages, he talks about how there are these people who just walk into the clubhouse and are game changers for a team because they shift the ambiance, they shift the energy, it makes the clubhouse lighter, and it ultimately makes the teams play better. Um, we hear the same thing from Stephen Curry of the Warriors and, um, and just many different athletes who say that actually laughing before a really important game is part of what helps them perform better. But that's great. I'm, I'm so glad that my performance was, you know, I used the tricks that really massive champions did for my own <laughs> <laughs> You know, you said there, going back a little bit to your humor audit of yourself, just what you've given us here and that humor has been a huge thing in your family. And by the way, I love that idea about uh, skit nights and for all those parents wondering what to do with their children during lockdown. Well, there's an amazing idea right here. <laughs> <laughs> Dress up skit nights is going to be the thing of lockdown 2021. I have another thing for parents. Okay, for parents who have kids who are, you know, a little bit older, having everyone in the family take our humor styles quiz is really powerful and fun. So the if you go to humorseriously.com, there's a quiz that you can take that uh, 
asks you basically like a personality styles quiz, but for your humor style. And our research has uncovered that there are these four broad styles of humor, the stand-up, the magnet, the sniper, and the sweetheart. And each of them has strengths. Each of them has potential you know, pitfalls. But understanding what your family members find funny and how they tend to create humor helps create more empathy, helps create more joy in the family, helps you appreciate each other's styles more. Um, and so this is something that we have, you know, it wasn't the intent of it that people would do with their families, but we've gotten a ton of feedback from people who are having their entire, entire families take it. And it's become a really fun thing, you know, during lockdown. But that's great. And also I imagine it could probably limit argument too, because if you have a different style to someone, I'm sure there are things that you might find funny that the other person doesn't find funny, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. But whilst we're on this thing of sharing, and it guess comes into this next piece, is um, we did another thing for families is um, have a disco with your kids and do uh, improv with young children. So we were dancing uh, like dragons <laughs> and elephants <laughs> and giraffes, <laughs> which me and my husband really got into more than the children so that was also a lot of fun and and this brings uh, me to to the improv connection here there is one in that you also shared that you um you felt that you lost your sense of humor in the workplace and i wanted to to talk about this and and ultimately your journey into prov into comedy because there was a moment i think you share in your book where you were working as a consultant and someone had made a dry joke at your expense about espousing as to what you did at your weekends. <laughs> and, and I think that was a wake up call for you. Do you want to, do you want to share a little bit about that? Because it, yes. that's your story. <laughs> it was, you know, and sadly it was not a joke. She was completely serious. So this was, um, gosh, this was, I was in my mid twenties, maybe early, early to mid twenties at this time. And I was working on a really high burn, intense consulting project. My client was a woman named Bonnie, and she and I had spent hundreds of hours together. I mean, we we knew each other very well in a professional context. And one Friday, she made sort of an offhanded comment before we got off the phone. She said, Naomi, I bet exact I bet I know exactly what you do on your Friday nights, which is objectively a weird thing for a client to say to you, but you know, we had spent a lot of time <laughs> together, so I was I went with it. And so I said, you know, okay, great, Bonnie. What do I do on my Friday nights? And she said, I bet you sit at home by yourself watching the History Channel and re-ironing your blouses for next week. And then she went on. I was like, really? Tell me more. She's totally not joking. She describes this apartment that's like gray-walled, landscape paintings. Everything is color-coordinated. Nothing out of, you know, no humor, no joy, no personality. She, I was like, okay, great. I'm, I'm so interested now. So I'm like, tell me more. She's like, well, you probably have a cat. And when I pressed her, she guessed that the cat was named Cat, which was totally not ironic. Like, cat as, as a name for a cat would be a funny name if you were naming your cat ironically. This woman basically just thought that I had no joy or personality outside of my life. And <laughs> it was a it was a genuine realization for me that I was leading a double life, that on nights and weekends, I was performing improv comedy. My house was a mess, by the way. Uh, did not have a cat, was fostering dogs. Uh, but it was, you know, she had basically held up a mirror and showed me who was showing up to work each day. And that person was no one that my friends would have recognized. It was, and it was frankly someone who I thought I needed to be to be successful as a young woman in business, which is, you know, professional, put together, very organized, absolutely no sense of humor, very serious all the time. So it was, yeah, it was this really uncomfortable moment of realizing that I was on a path that was unsustainable and not authentic. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. It's funny how when a client says something to you and you're in those situations that you can't really say anything back. But the important insight from this is, it, it you know, it's really interesting as you share, it was a, a mirror, someone else's perception of you and a mirror into your your work self. And I guess I, I came into the workplace from a swimming career where, you know, we talked about athletes joking all the time and there was a big joking culture in, in swimming culture as well. And I came in with with that. I didn't put on, you know, a, 
a severe face. I just walked up and was like, hey, people are out to have fun. Let's have fun mm-hmm. <laughs> and work hard at the same time. And I had the opposite experience where I was banned for, for turning up with a very open sense of humor. <laughs> so, wow, you, you know, really? Yeah, I think there's a an interesting um, balance and we can get more into that because we'll, we'll come up to how humor, um, you know, where's a good starting point. And if you're leading this life where you're actually going on a journey yourself of uh, developing improv, you've moved, I think you've moved cities to enhance your comedy and craft. You've worked with some of the most famous comedy theaters. So we should also say doing very, very well in your corporate career at the same time. So we're working these two different paths but you know you must I guess thinking back to it when you started your training in comedy did you feel that you had a natural disposition for it not just because you've it was in your family but did you feel that you had this you, you know raw capability shall we say to do it or has, has it taken you time to harness uh, the power of humor I think both. So I I always was really drawn to humor and comedy, but I'm sure in a way that was completely annoying to everyone around me. (laughs) Like, you know, I was voted class clown of my high school and I was always in the school plays. And while other girls were dating and having boyfriends, I was like making sketches in my backyard with all my close friends and doing like Saturday Night Live takeoffs. So I always was really interested in humor and comedy. That's not to say that I was good at it. And then when you start, when I started to train at places like the Upright Citizens Brigade, you realize that this is a craft and an art form that is so intellectually rigorous and challenging. I mean, I felt as intellectually challenged doing my advanced classes at the Upright Citizens Brigade as I did in my classes at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. The The only difference, by the way, is at Stanford, you don't have to stand up and perform and be judged by your classmates every day, all day, every day. So it's really a serious craft. And that's been one fun thing about this work and about having people read the book is people start to realize that there is some science to it. And I don't mean brain science. There's that too. But there's also sort of a mathematical formula to what people are going to find funny. How how do you take something that you might find intriguing or interesting or a little bit incongruent in your life and turn it into something that other people might laugh at. So back to your question, I would say, I think it was both. I definitely had a natural tendency towards it. That said, I completely fell off a cliff when I uh, when I went to work and I was not having fun at all. And then I really dug into the the craft of it so that I could train like someone would for a sport. Yeah, and you, you and you you've worked really hard, and it's 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 clearly a passion of yours. And I totally agree that there your your framing there of it both being an art and science. And I think a lot of when you know if I think about myself and comedy, I I guess I'm a collector of it, or I I'm an ingester of it, watching it on TV and appreciating it. So not necessarily being intellectually challenged to come up with it my, myself, mm-hmm. and. I think people, people's first, I don't know if that's the right way of framing it, but there's, you know, my, to your point, my, my dad was a, is a funny guy. There was a lot of laughter in our family as well. And it's something we've always led with. But when it comes to comedy, you know, you look at the people who make it on TV or in stand up and everybody thinks humor is about being really, really funny. Mm. Like to be a funny person, you have to be standout funny. And yeah. um I think it can be really off-putting for people to, or really damaging to people's own confidence about their own humor potential because it feels inaccessible in a way. Yeah. So chapter one of the book, we talk about the relationship between levity, humor, and comedy. And we liken it to the relationship between movement, exercise, and sports. I was a college athlete. I, I played basketball in college. And that's where I became obsessed with studying the game. You know, I would watch game film. I would watch things that I did in slow motion. I would really break apart my form. And I wanted to get way, way better by breaking down the fundamentals of what I was doing. Same thing with comedy. When I got super into comedy, I was going to, you know, three shows a night just to watch really good improvisers perform. I was, you know, taking all these classes. I was performing in indie theaters. That 
is not what we're doing. We're not here to teach people how to be college athletes, how to be professional athletes, how to be professional comedians. What we're teaching people to do is to move more comfortably through the world. So if we think about movement versus exercise versus sports, movement is just the way that you navigate the world, right? How do you move your body from sitting in the kitchen to uh you're, I guess, sitting sitting in the living room to the fridge, which is really my main form of exercise these days is just living <laughs> and room. And most fridge. people's. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so it's, it's something that we do without thinking. And similarly, a mindset, we talk about a mindset of levity, that this is a way that you approach the world, even either on the precipice of a frown or the precipice of a smile. And we know that minor adjustments in how you move or in your mindset have major impact on not just how you feel, but how other people interact with you. So for example, imagine walking down the street with your shoulders completely slouched and your head down. It's going to change the way you feel and it's going to change the way other people interact with you. Similarly, if you're walking down the street with your shoulders back, you know, with your head held high, again, it's going to change those things. And the same thing goes with how we navigate our lives in terms of mindset, whether we're on the lookout for joy or whether we're on the lookout for reasons to be disappointed in the world. And so that is fundamentally what we're trying to teach. And then when we talk about humor, these are sort of discrete acts of levity brought into the world, right? So you channel movement to uh, exercise, just like you channel levity to create moments of humor. And we also know the reason that we talk about these, these techniques from comedians in the book is we can learn from those experts without becoming experts ourselves, right? I can... Uh, watch a professional runner and get a few tips so that when I go for a jog to get some exercise, it feels a lot more comfortable. And and our students feel this way on the first day of class. They're totally intimidated. They think that we're going to ask them to do stand-up comedy. And that's absolutely not what we're doing. We we really fundamentally want to change the way that they interact with the world, the way that they, these small habits that they do every single day, and that and our thesis is that that is the thing that's going to have the, the greatest impact on having joy in your life and having more humor at work. Yeah. And I, I, the mindset piece for me just really stuck out when when because you have it as a pyramid and levity is at the bottom and then levity and then humor and then comedy. And I like the comedy being the pinnacle of that triangle, which is, you, you know, you, you get achieve mastery, essentially. And levity is universally available to everyone. You know, just reading your book over my new favorite game is approaching the supermarket checkout with levity. (laughs) (laughs) I keep on making jokes or, um, you know, literally bringing humor to the guy with this whole approach of just switching the mindset from you know, boredom or um, routine or anger and and finding levity, you can cheer up your own day and someone else's. And and, and that's what really stuck out for me because you have this fact in your book that the average four-year-old will laugh 300 times a day, whereas the average 40-year-old, which I suppose I am encroaching upon... um, (laughs) will laugh that many times in two and a half months. So 300 times a day for a four-year-old versus that amount in two and a half months is very sad prospect for turning 40, I have to say. It really is. It really is. The only way I'd change that is someone in your 40s with young children, maybe that fact changes a bit because watching them on a day-to-day basis definitely makes me makes me laugh a lot. Yeah, the highs the highs are higher and the lows are low. <laughs> you know, so this is actually and it's not just uh, that data point is obviously about people who are 40, but there's this global data set of 1.4 million people across 166 countries that showed what we call the humor cliff, which is essentially, so these 1.4 million people were asked a really simple question. Did you smile or laugh a lot yesterday? And what we found when we dug into, into this research was at age 16, 18, 20, people are pretty much saying, yes, yes, I smiled and laughed a lot yesterday. And then at right around age 23, you see people fall off a cliff that more and more the answer becomes no. And of course, this is when we start going to work, right? We go to work, we become serious, important people. We either have experiences like I did, where I preemptively put my sense of humor away, or experiences like you did, where you show up 
full on with your sense of humor. And then you realize, oh my gosh, I've done something wrong, right? You you use it in the wrong way or you get feedback that, that you're not taking the work seriously and you stop. And what we find is that people don't start consistently saying yes again until they retire. And by the way, there is a small blip right around uh, late 30s, early 40s. So we do think that this is when people have young kids <laughs> and are laughing a bit more. But um, but it's it's really a it's a pretty devastating statistic, especially because there are all these misperceptions about humor. So we think that humor is you know fun, frivolous, not to be not to be used in a serious context. But we know that leaders who are rated by their employees as having a sense of humor are seen as 27% more motivating and admired. They, Their employees are 15% more engaged at work. Their teams are more than twice as likely to solve a creativity challenge. And they also have more negotiating power. So in one of our favorite studies, researchers had participants negotiate over the purchase price of a piece of art. And these researchers had two conditions. In one condition, so that it was the exact same script with one minor difference. In one condition, the script ended with, my final offer is X. And in the other condition, the script ended with, my final offer is X, and I'll throw in my pet frog. Now, what these researchers found was that those participants in the pet frog condition were willing to pay, on average, an 18% higher price for that piece of art just because there was a lighthearted, very lame dad joke inserted at the end of that of that negotiation. So two things are happening. One, we have all these misperceptions about humor, and so we're not laughing. And two, we're actually leaving a ton of value on the table by leaving our sense of humor at home. That's amazing because, you know, that was the question I had and you was going to go with just now was the most common barriers to people embracing a mindset of levity. And it seems to be like this societal norm of how you're supposed to behave in a workplace is a big, is the big game changer. It's being sucked into the rat race and, and having to uh, perform, I guess, being that person you thought that you had to be in your early 20s. But in, in doing so and embracing and fitting in into that culture, you're to your point, you're just leaving all this opportunity on the side, let alone your own, you know, the value there to the business, but also the value that it would bring to yourself. So totally. I guess there's the barrier of of societal norm and then also the barrier of everybody thinking that humor has to be, you know, you have to be really, really funny. I, I do find that with creativity as well as when, when you ask someone to work on an idea or um, you bring someone into a session to, to where it's inherently about creative problem solving, people immediately think for whatever reason, there's a creativity equals default multi-billion dollar idea. And I mean, if it were that easy, we'd all be multi-billionaires and very different world. But there is, you say, there's this art and this science and there's finding your place within the humor world. And and that was a question which I had now, which is how do people navigate signs to help them determine, I guess, when the right moment might be for them to introduce levity into a situation? Mm. How do they know when is a good time to inject a dose of levity? So I would say more often it's about when is the time not to, because more often than not, we're so craving human connection and humor and laughter and a bit more humanity in our interactions. And what I have found and what the executives we work with and the students we work with is these little these little sparkles of levity and humor are real windows into humanity. And if you think about this moment in time, right, not only is it incredibly challenging for so many people, but we're also more technology mediated than ever before. And we know that the more technology-mediated our communications become, the easier it is to talk like a robot and act like a robot because we adapt to our medium. And so it's really easy to go through an entire conversation with a client, with another team member on whatever video conference platform you're on and not make a human connection. I would say baseline is all times are the right time to bring a little bit more humanity to work, which is a window into our sense of humor. Times when it's less appropriate, um, I would actually say that it's based on what type of humor you're using because there is humor that diffuses tension that's really productive, 
right? How do we get past this tense moment so that we can accomplish our goal? But then there's also humor that detracts from the thing that we're all here to do because the you know, the tension is too uncomfortable. I like how you shared there, it's about finding the moments when when not to. And I, and I, you know, I also really like the idea of this being a human process because it's so true. People are obsessed with their phones. We were just talking about Instagram coming in where you're trying to appeal to this ether of individuals and appease of an algorithm. Like you're, you're literally talking to an algorithm to get <laughs> people to pay attention to you, which is insane to me. Right. Um, but this is the way that we are now. And if I think about all the life experiences I've had and the situations I've been in, I suppose that diversity and collection of physical human experience would allow me to know when is a good time to be levity and when is not. So there's definitely something about being observational. If, if you're starting on this journey of wanting to bring more levity in and, and being the the perpetrator of that is is starting to have increased awareness about the way you move through your day and the situations you're in and determine would that have been a right opportunity for levity or not um mm. could be that sounds like that could be an interesting starting place for people yeah i remember we interviewed a comedian who said that humor exists in the space between the comedian and the audience and it's this idea that there is humor doesn't exist in a vacuum. This is not like one joke that works around the dinner table isn't going to work in the boardroom, isn't going to work in a, you know, one situation versus another. There's so much value in getting good at reading the room and having empathy, understanding what are people feeling and how is this joke going to make people feel or how is this, you know, act going to make people feel rather than how am I going to look when I say this funny thing or, you know, when I get these laughs? So I think that's absolutely right. I guess that brings us into actually cracking the joke, the humor part of it, which we've talked about. So levity is, is a mindset and judging where is an opportunity to inject it. And then there's basically having the capability or potentially, frankly, the balls, depending on the situation you're in to, right. to, bring, to bring the joke. And, and, the, the joke creation part is definitely what you shared earlier. There's, I can definitely see the art in it, in how to create the perfect joke. And then there is also the science part of this, because you're asking your brain to make different connections, sometimes very, very quickly firing a neural network to come out with a, a joke. I would love to ask you, you know, what is the neuroscience behind how our minds work in these situations? Because I think breaking that science down might help people to see where they can start there too. Mm, sure. So humor, we talk about how humor, all humor has two elements um, and it has much more than that. But the two first principles of, of humor are um, at the heart of comedy is truth and surprise and misdirection are key to getting laughs. So truth and misdirection really. And to get super nerdy about this, the reason that we laugh is something that scientists call incongruity resolution theory, where we think that something is going to go in one direction and instead it goes in the other direction. So, you know, if someone walks into a dinner party late and says, everyone, I'm so sorry I'm late. I didn't want to come, right? This is sort of the exact <laughs> opposite that we would think that their excuse would be. We would, ex we would expect them to say, you know, there was traffic or the Zoom link didn't work or, you know, whatever that excuse is. And so that surprise, that misdirection creates uh, incongruity in our brains. Our prefrontal cortex springs into action to resolve that, that incongruity. And we, you know, once it resolves it, that results in laughter. So it's essentially a similar process to when we come up with new, brand new creative ideas, because our brain is needing to make new connections that aren't part of its normal neural pathways, right? Like we're um, if someone said, sorry, I'm late, there was traffic, that's very expected. Our brain doesn't have to do any gymnastics. But when you say, I didn't want to come, your brain is now doing gymnastics to understand, wait a minute, I didn't expect that. Where did that come from? So that's one part. That's sort of what happens in our brains. When we laugh, this incredibly powerful thing happens, which is laughter changes the chemistry of our brains. So we release a cocktail of, of hormones when we laugh. We release Dopamine uh, makes us feel happier, a little little uh, pleasure hit. We release endorphins. So similar, think of this like a runner's high, right? We uh, release 
oxytocin, which is often called the love, the love uh, hormone or the trust hormone. This makes a um, an emotional connection with the person that we're with. And it, by the way, also released during when mothers give birth and yep. during sex. And then we also uh, lower our cortisol. So this is makes us feel calmer, uh, makes us feel less stressed. And this also happens when we meditate. So we we often say that you could think of laughter for our brains. Laughter is essentially like uh, exercising, meditating, and having sex at the same time. But you know, far less complicated <laughs> logistically. Um, it's, so it's a lot easier than doing mace. Much, much, e- much easier. And these these changes in our brain have very real changes in our behavior. And you know, we feel more calm, confident, relaxed, and also in how people perceive us. So they perceive us as higher in status, as more confident, as more competent. Um, you know, they they say that we're more motivating. They say that we're more likable. And so laughter is really this powerful drug to give to yourself and your teammates when you're trying to do anything creative at work. Yeah. Well, and, and it's very true. And by the way, when you said that on national TV in the States, I think the anchors were really uncomfortable. So I enjoyed I enjoyed watching their reaction. Yeah. <laughs> <'Cause> I, <laughs> Who knew? Just talking about brain science over here. <laughs> it also made a lot of sense to me. Um, and an amazing way of breaking down neuroscience, which is incredibly complex. And see, you, you know, you think about, you, you know, the, the best meditations you've ever had, the best exercise workouts you've ever had. And you also remember the best laughs you've you've ever had. So part of that too, Sam, is uh, is the dopamine hit, actually. So dopamine increases our, our memory retention. So they've, they've done tests where people laugh before doing a short-term memory experiment, and then other people don't laugh. And the people who laugh are able to remember more than twice as much as the people who didn't laugh before. And aside here, I remember watching former President Obama's State of the Union And I was sitting there, I was sort of doing work while I was listening, and he made some lame joke about about smoked salmon. And you can just Google President Obama salmon to see what the joke was, right? (laughs) It was an hour-long State of the Union, and, you know, this one moment where he made a joke about salmon, the room erupted in laughter, and I sort of thought, oh, that's, like, nice, good one. But I didn't think much of it other than that. Well, the next day, NPR surveyed their listeners on what were the most memorable phrases or words from that State of the Union. And, you know, you expect to hear things like uh, hope and change and um, policy and, right, like these sorts of words. And in fact, the most remembered word of the entire State of the Union was salmon. (laughs) You know, it's incredibly powerful, especially if you want to have people remember you and your message. It's a it's a powerful way to sort of have people parse the signal from the noise. I think, well, you know, if, if people aren't convinced at this point, what have we got? We've got levity uh, increases, uh, your connections, your resilience, your power, your creativity, which we'll talk more into in a second. It increases productivity and enhanced value within your team experiences. It's it's as good as exercise, <laughs> meditation, and sex in terms of the in the cocktail. I don't know if I'd say in your mind. <laughs> I don't know if I'd say as good as. I would. I will say our brains are firing with many of the same hormones <laughs> that have some degree of the same effects. <laughs> right, right, and and obviously I was being emphatic, but yes, yes, <laughs> I I can totally understand why you need to just check me on that one. But yeah, there's <laughs> the, there's so much in here about why. You know, levity, it should be a lifetime focus. And and also I think that piece about the memory is also another really awesome thing. Because I, I sit there and reflect on how I used to study for exams. And, you know, it's always just a serious process sat behind your desk and writing and reading. But really, there should be this part of it where you have to do a stand-up comedy skit to share back, <laughs> you know, your biology paper or whatever that you're about to do, because you won't, you won't forget it. So um, <laughs> a- another, you know, another parenting tip. <laughs> Lots so that's for parents. <laughs> I remember before my GMAT exam, I, I, um, the night before I made up all of these songs to help me remember different elements of you know, structuring essays or different things like that. You know, they had all these study rules around them. 
and I made up these parody songs and it was such an easy way. I mean, obviously like that also has to do with song that has to do with lyric, which is a totally different tangent. But yeah, if you can find ways to laugh and be lighthearted, bring in movement, bring in dance, bring in song, all of these things we know not only spark greater creativity, but also help us file things away into our short and long-term memory. I'm just going to pick you up on the word creativity there, because I know we don't have much time left. And um, I I just, given this as natural born thinkers and helping people think differently and approach creative problem solving in a refreshed way, I, I wanted to spend a bit of time there because it seems... And, and you've mentioned it too, that we use a lot of the same connections um, in how we think about ideas as how we think about a joke, if like joke is the currency for an idea and if that makes sense. Um, and for me, there's a lot of, I've, I've spent some time thinking about this, come preparing for this podcast, that there is a lot in common between creativity and humor in, in that. And I think the biggest breakthrough for me was um, that creativity doesn't come just out of you know it, it has to start somewhere like humor and I I felt that there's a mindset shift here that was interesting about how might we approach if we were to build that pyramid for creativity what would that look like and I felt that there's a bottom line missing that we don't often talk about which perhaps is the mindset of play you have to have mm. this playful mindset coming into creativity and then maybe the pinnacle of that um, pyramid is art um, where you achieve mm. mastery of a creative um, task. That's great. I love it. You know, you, you also share it, it uh, in your book and and you've talked about it here as well, that a lot of humor is born out of an emotional reaction to something. Because I, I suppose when you see something that's incongruent to what you usually expect, it will trigger an emotional reaction, which you could be surprised and therefore someone laughs and finds it funny. And, and I, I feel like ideas are not uncommonly associated with emotion either. So out of maybe they're born out of passion or anger. Um, then some of the techniques um, about uh, making jokes. So you, you've said there's um, the truth factor, um, the finding things that are, you know, a break in the pattern and, mm -hmm. and being observational um, to know when to make a joke. I think a lot of that comes into creativity as well, as you look to find something that breaks a pattern or something, you know, you make a new pattern by making different connections and observing something that needs uh, change. And you've also shared on this podcast as well that they, there are different styles of being a funny person. So um, the sweetheart, the sniper, and... Um, Sorry, the other two, I'm not good at remembering. The, the magnet and the stand-up. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> so I need some dopamine here. I need to make a funny rhyme about the four totally. stars. <laughs> and I'm done. Um, so that was just my reflection on connecting the, the dots. But could you just share before you go, the um, how does humor's impact on the, you know, what is humor's impact on the creative mind? Like, how does it get all of it going? Because you said it enables creativity, but for those who want to go out and start really changing, A, their approach to humor, and B, having more of and being more comfortable with the idea of creativity, what's the connection there that um, people should be looking to think about? Yeah. I mean, so first I agree wholeheartedly with everything that you've said. So I'll just, I'll just add an element of psychological safety which is I remember talking to Hiroki Asai, who was the head of, of Marcoms at Apple for many years alongside Steve Jobs. And he, he led a team of 2,000 creatives. His point of view, which I agree with wholeheartedly, is fear is the greatest killer of creativity. And humor is the greatest insulator that he's seen to protect his organization from fear, to help chase fear out of the system, as he said it. And so when we think about laughter and, and physiologically what's going on is our cortisol is going down, which makes us literally feel less fearful, less fight or flight, less stressed. Um, our epinephrine goes down, again, less fearful, less fight or flight, less stressed. And there's also an element of authenticity that humor brings. When people are comfortable bringing their sense of humor to work, a whole lot more follows along as well, that it, it's a window into having more of our humanity at work. And so part of this is 
you know, it helps our brains make make connections, this element of mindset of play, being able to, to create tangential thoughts that you wouldn't otherwise. Another part of it is just creating an environment where people feel safe enough to share their wild and weird and kind of off the wall ideas that might actually turn into some of the most brilliant things that people end up choosing to do. Oh, that's really interesting because there is, it's, and you've, we've come back to, if people hadn't picked up on it so far, it comes back to that piece of being hum, human centric, bringing people yeah. back to their humanity with that authenticity. And I also, and like turning down the stress, turning down the judgment, which you may have from yourself or feel comes from the environments you're in. In enabling you to turn that down and just let yourself come out, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the last thing that I just have to say before you do go is I love the quote that you share from Einstein in this book because you've talked about, um, you know, that humor has this intellectual piece to it. But you've shared that the quote, which says, creativity is your intelligence having fun. Yes, totally. I guess if you were to share some final messages for people, it would be a lot to ask you to come up with a parody of the top three things you want people to remember coming away from this. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, you know, if there was a, a line like creativity is your intelligence having fun or Naomi's own uh, final comment to tie us all together, what would that be? For the rest of the day... And for the rest of the week, actually, feel what it feels like to navigate your life on the precipice of a smile. That's it. That is my single ask of people. What does it feel like to navigate your life on the precipice of a smile? Oh, that's a lovely message and something that can be so easily done. And I'm so appreciative of you taking the time, Naomi. This has definitely been my funniest podcast so far <laughs> with lots and lots of laughter. And I've really enjoyed it. I hope the listeners have too. Lots of great messages to take away. And it goes without saying that people should definitely read Humor Seriously from beginning to end. It's a great read, great insights, great stories and great takeaways that you can action in your own life so simply so please take a look at humor seriously and enjoy and thank you so much thank you for having me sam thank you for listening to the natural born thinkers podcast more information about today's guest and any of the resources shared during a conversation can be found in the podcast show notes to find out more about Natural Born Thinkers, please visit the Natural Born Thinkers website and follow us on Instagram at Natural Born Thinkers. Today's show was produced by Force 9 Audio and podcast graphics were designed by Carl Gamble. Natural Born Thinkers is at the beginning of its journey and thank you for joining us on this adventure. Until the next time.